Hello folks, I'm Paul English and welcome to our Producing Scripted Television panel, part of the BAFTA Scotland session supported by Screen Scotland. Yes, a virtual series to celebrate some of the nominees and nominated programmes from this year's British Academy Scotland Awards. You'll be relieved to know that this being Zoom, there's no quiz afterwards tonight, or maybe disappointed. Uh, some housekeeping notes uh, before we get started. These virtual events are part of BAFTA's learning work to share expertise from film, games and television with audiences far and wide. Please do check out BAFTA.org and BAFTA's social channels for more activity and news. You can join the conversation tonight on social using a hashtag Scotland Sessions uh, tonight and afterwards. And you can ask your questions tonight. Obviously, we're not all together in an audience. But you can use the Q&A function on Zoom down there at the bottom and we'll get round to them in the last 15 minutes of tonight's hour-long session. Closed captioning is available now, which you can turn on at the bottom of your screen. And finally, please welcome our speakers. Tonight we have Emma Kingsman-Lloyd from Deadwater Fell, Sarah Brown from Elizabeth is Missing and Jules Hussey, producer of Guilt. Hello, everyone. Hi. Can you all Hi. hear me? Hi. That's good to know. Great. Well, congratulations, folks, uh, first of all. Um, in a difficult year, it's nice to have some, some positive news, a difficult year personally and for the industry. So congratulations to you all. I'm sure that must have put quite a spring in your step collectively. <laughs> um, I suppose the opening question on that respect is, is uh, we'll go left, left to right as it appears on my screen. Sarah. How did it feel to get uh, the nomination, in fact, nominations uh, this year? Well, obviously, it's always brilliant to to you know have your show uh, recognised by your by your peers, really, and and I think particularly for Elizabeth's Missing, which was um, six years in the making between when when we optioned the book in in manuscript, uh, sort of six years ago, I think it was. Um, to when it went on air, so it was a kind of it was a labour of love. So um, and also I think the the subject of the film means a lot to us, and um, you know I think anything that gives more attention to the subject of dementia is a is a brilliant thing. Um, and also we obviously we made the show entirely in Scotland, so it's sort of very pleasing to have um, yeah to have a nomination in Scotland. Yeah. How about you, Emma? Um, Quite similar, really. You know, I mean, we're so, so proud to have been nominated. It's absolutely fantastic. Likewise, it was a labour of love for us. It's an important subject, you know, coercive control and family annihilation is not an easy subject to tackle. And being able to bring this story to, to the screen was really important to us. And then for people to recognise it and to have enjoyed what we did, is it's just fantastic. It really is. Jules. I think as the other two nominees reveal, it was a year when there was some fantastic TV being made in Scotland, some really high calibre and really important stuff. Um, and we hit an old man with the car, so I'm not quite sure that we, ma we match the, uh, the, the gravitas of the subject matter, but I absolutely echo the, the pleasure of making a show entirely in Scotland from, from start to finish, including all the posts, some amazing facilities, with only five non-Scots on the whole team, including me. Um, and also to be the first the first drama on BBC Scotland to be nominated, um, you know, in that year is fantastic. So thank you. Yeah, it's a real landmark for for Gil and for and for the BBC Scotland channel as well. I think to some extent, actually, 
it was the, the programme that, that cemented the BBC Scotland Channel maybe in a lot of people's minds. Yeah, that was, a, I think the, the amount of pride that just, just doing that, you know, uh, was felt amongst the crew was fantastic, actually, a real sense of identity and loyalty. And yeah, it, it was really, really a joy to be part of that as, um, am I allowed to say I'm half Scottish? I know that really annoys people, but it was really a joy to, to, to do that. I, I studied in Scotland for two degrees, so coming back and being around my family, I was proud to be to making that show, actually. Emma, I suppose it's, it's always interesting um, to hear, uh, you know, we're, we're familiar now with the final product and, you know, we're at the point now where, where these, 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 uh, these productions are, and stories are, are being garlanded uh, now, um, having been run through the filter of the critics, uh, <laughs> as well as, as the enjoyment of the audience. Take us back to the, to, to the point where, you know, cameras, cameras were nowhere near these projects. Take us back to the point where you were, you were just starting out. I'll, I'll come to all three of you with this one, but if you could... If you could uh, kick us off, Emma, tell us about the genesis of Deadwater Film. Uh, well, um, Daisy Coulomb, the writer, and I have worked together for a long time. Uh, we worked together on Grantchester, which is a show that we make for ITV, uh, which is, a, you know, it's a formatted crime drama, does very well. Um, but, you know, Daisy and I have always worked very well together. And I knew that she really wanted, she had a really important story that she wanted to tell. And so we just worked together right from the beginning, kind of developing the idea. And at Kudos, we were able to give Daisy the space. She knew that she needed to write a script, which doesn't always happen. You know, you have to go through treatment stage, but we said to Daisy, write episode one, write what you really want to, you know, write the story you want to tell. And she did. And it was, you know, it was phenomenal reading that first episode. And she wrote it really quickly and then obviously being able to take it to Channel 4 and, you know, Caroline Hollick jumping on, on board with us was, it was, it was really wonderful that somebody really saw what Daisy wanted to say, not just about coercive control, but also, you know, it's a very personal story for Daisy about IVF yeah. and that she felt safe enough to kind of explore that through the drama was wonderful. And it was fantastic for me, having worked with her on a show that possibly is a bit lighter for her to really explore her darker side was uh it was it was a really interesting and rewarding experience for us to have sarah how about same question to you for for elizabeth is missing tell us about the, the the kind of early 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 growth stages of the story yeah i mean obviously it's based on a, a best-selling book um and um uh claire armspa who is our head of development at stv studios she um, spotted the book in manuscript before it even had been published right. uh, and in fact I'm not even sure it had found a UK publisher at that point but it was certainly really early days and um, she just saw something really special in it and then shortly after that I, I joined the company and um, Andrea Gibb had just come on board as the screenwriter and it, and it felt like a kind of perfect match of of um, book to adapter really she was just sort of the most obvious obviously perfect person to to write that story and then we kind of the three of us Claire Andrea and I just went on a five-year journey <laughs> to get it to green light and um, it, yeah it, it, cha it changed shapes it started as a three-part story and and then over time it, it became a, a single film which I think really it wanted to be and it just took us a while to figure that out um, yeah, so it was a kind of it was a I think it was a particularly difficult book to adapt, and Andrea that's why Andrea did it so brilliantly because it's it's a it's a story that um, is told through 
you know, the inner workings of one woman's mind as she experiences dementia. And so that's an incredibly difficult challenge for um, a screenwriter to then find a dramatic expression for that for TV. Yeah. Um, so there was a, a really long and quite difficult sort of development process, not difficult in terms of the, the experience of it, because Andrea is amazing to work with. But it, it, it was a kind of, you know, it was a really sort of mentally kind of challenging piece, I think probably the hardest script I've ever worked on in terms of how we crack, we needed to crack it. Um, yeah, and then, and then, um, and then eventually after the long and winding road to um, production, it was it was greenlit, and um, yeah, and the rest is history. I mean, we do hear of productions that that that, that stay, you know, getting them from idea to screen, you know, tends to be quite a long gest gestation sort of process. Really, is five years typical? Is five years exceptionally long? I think it's probably on the longer side, but it's certainly not unheard of. I mean, I think probably more typically the things that I've developed in the past have taken sort of somewhere between sort of two to three years. But I mean, um, Emma and Jules may have a different story. So that is, that's probably on the longer side, but I think there were, there were lots of reasons for that. You know, there was a various sort of changes of commissioners and changes of, of uh, shape and, um, so there's lots of reasons why it took a long time, but, um, you know, actually, I think in the end, the time we, we were allowed to spend on that script and getting it right, I think in the end really paid off. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you know, when, 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 when Ashlyn came on as director, then it kind of took on a whole new lease of life and, and she really elevated it to a whole other level. How about you, Jules? I remember coming on to the set of, of, um, of Guilt and, uh, somewhere in the north of Glasgow. Um, I think we maybe spoke about this at the time, you know, getting the getting the project from from the kind of, you know, seed idea to the point where, where you know, it was uh, lights, camera and action up there in the, in the, uh, on the set. Tell us about that process. Tell us about getting it to, to the point where things were happening. Well, I'm, I'm unusual from, from the, other, the other two here because I came on very late in the project, you know, employed as a, a producer much later down the line. But I know that Neil Forsyth, who created and wrote, this had, had it in process for I think, you know, three, three plus years, I can't remember the exact amount of time. And that sort of time scale isn't surprising. You know, I think when you're dealing with people come to me with ideas, they expect it to happen in a year. They don't, you know, three, five, seven, the favorite, I know it's a film, but 20 years, you know, it, it, this, the time scales can be massive. I actually came on board really late. I think most of the crew were on board before me, um, which is unusual. Um, and they were all a joy. So I'm relieved about that because that could have been really unpleasant otherwise. But this is um, Neil Forsyth's um, brainchild and, and passion. He very much wrote it with Mark Bonner in mind and, and with um, Neil Webster and Kirsty MacDonald. It was a, a co-production between two companies who I think they wouldn't mind me saying hadn't really done drama before. Um, so it was a real journey of um, collab like genuine collaboration and trust between us all. And that, that was a, a pleasure to, to work on. And, and just playing around with the humor and the darkness with Neil, it was, um, yeah, a, a quite an unusual way of working, but a thoroughly enjoyable one. From the producer's perspective, for, for all three of you, you've all referenced Andrea, Daisy and, and Neil, all your writers. To, to give us an indication of, of what extent, to what extent you, you're involved in this sort of guiding of their hand, if you like, in telling the story, or is it, you know, by that point, are you stepping back? Uh, sorry, Sarah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, because I'm, I'm a... Uh, a producer who develops as well. I think it was, it's just a very, very close collaboration and that, that relationship with your writer is, is 
you know, when it, when it's working well is one of complete trust and openness. And it wasn't about me guiding Andrea's hand. It was about about us working together with with Claire to to find the show. So um, and and Andrea is a writer who is incredibly open to that collaborative process. And so there was nothing I couldn't say or Claire couldn't say. Yeah. because it was sort of taken in the spirit of we all are trying to do the same thing, which yeah. is to make the best possible version of this script. How about you, Emma? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd say the same. I mean, I think, you know, Daisy and I have a real shorthand, which is lovely from working together for a long time. And I think, you know, she she's very clear when she thinks that, you know, we can all step back a bit and give her a bit of space. But um, She's she's fantastically collaborative as well, and you know Karen Wilson, who's MD of Qdos, is uh, my fellow EP on it, and working with Channel Four, Daisy is is just wonderfully collaborative, and she and she wanted to really explore all the all the things that they were interested to, for us to try and look at within the within the show, and it's just a really lovely relationship. To you know, it's so lucky. You know, most writers I have worked with have been very open, but I am extraordinarily lucky that I have a shorthand with Daisy. Um, and it was for such a difficult subject matter. It was actually a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, I suppose to, to you know, I mean, to a greater or lesser extent, is something that each of your productions has in common. Not the same kind of darkness, but there is darkness within each 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 story. And I guess you probably have to have a degree of there has to be a degree of responsibility. There has to be a degree of kind of you know care taken in, in the telling of these tales. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think particularly with um, dementia as a subject, you know, we all went into it with a with a very keen sense of our responsibility to tell that story properly, and and that was, you know, some a lot of that came from the book, which was written um, from Emma Healy's own experiences with her grandmother. But beyond that, when it came to making the show, you know, we we shared the script with Dementia UK, and we had advice from them on the script, and then at the performance stage. Uh, Glenda Jackson met with with a doctor from Dementia UK who talked to her about the performance so at every stage there was this very you know you know I think we were we were keenly aware of how many people in the audience experience dementia either firsthand or are carers or who have experienced it that we the, <laughs> the thought of of not doing justice to that was just it was just not really an option um, you know, and I think I, and no one experiences the same, but I think we felt very strongly that we had to really try and be as true to that as possible. I mean, that duty of care is is, is just so important in terms of t telling the story authentically in a way that, you know, it is true, as, as Sarah says, to, to a whole myriad of experiences amongst the audience and also a duty of care to a writer who's you know been developing a project for a long time, but also getting the tone right always at every level. And knowing you are you are trying to get an audience to engage and, and it's it's what they engage with is not the issue it's the character and making sure that you get that story across in a really genuine in a genuine way with a duty of care i still can't really talk about hitting a man with a car um in that way but there's a duty of care in there somewhere <laughs> no you're right jules uh, uh, we we worked with a clinical psychologist because again i think you know subject matter wise there is there could have been a version of Deadwater Fell that was quite salacious or um, flippant in some way, which was, at, you know, was never anything that we wanted to explore. It wasn't the sort of show we wanted to make. And it was extraordinarily important to all of us 
that Daisy was able to kind of look at case files, work with um, clinical psychologists to really understand, um, yeah, as you say, the kind of the authenticity of it at the heart of the story. Now, the cast in each of uh, the uh, dramas is, uh, well, I, I mean, certainly I, I have to start with Glenda Jackson, Sarah, uh, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll come to all of you and we'll, we'll talk about the cast and, and, and your experiences of, of bringing them to your projects and also working with them. But tell us about how you got Glenda Jackson into the role, Sarah, because to all intents and purposes, she was retired. Yeah, well, she certainly hadn't been on screen in over 25 years, although she was, um, I mean, she'd been an MP for 21 years and then after that did some work on the stage. Um, so she had recently played King Lear in the West End and then on Broadway. Yeah. And that's that's the point at which we, when she was doing King Lear on Broadway, that's the point at which we sent her the script for Elizabeth Smith. And she, she was working, but she wasn't really in the public consciousness as much because she wasn't doing any films or TV in Hunt for a very long time. But um, it was actually Ashling Walsh, who's our director, whose brilliant, uh, inspiring idea it was. And when she said it in her very first meeting with us we just kind of it was a sort of light bulb moment going off when we just thought well that's the most absolutely most genius idea but you know there's no chance of us getting her I mean it's Glenda Jackson but actually I think um, once we sent the script and she was aware of the book dementia was an issue that was very um, important to her because as an MP I think she's had quite a lot of experience of going into care homes and, and having constituents who were living with dementia so um, we were we were certainly pushing on an open door in terms of the subject matter and then of course the script was so brilliant and and such an amazing part I mean there's so few parts on TV for older women and, and parts of that caliber so I think um, yeah so we sent the script and then Ashling flew out to New York to, to see her and to talk to her about it and and it was actually really straightforward from that point on and now I just can't you know I can't imagine anyone else playing that part i mean yeah. really from from the outset she completely inhabited the role yeah absolutely uh, just on the point that you you made um a couple of minutes ago there but you know that she spent a great or spent an amount of time with a specialist in in dementia can you tell us a little bit more about that and what what she what she got from from that sort of level yeah of i mean i think glenda's talked about this i think it's, so so we introduced her to um a doctor who works for dementia uk and uh, they spent some time together talking about, um, you know, what it's like to actually be someone who is living with, with dementia rather than someone who is caring for someone with dementia. And I think um, when there's moments in the script where she's really furious and, and Glenda wants to understand what, the, what, what that was about, where that sort of anger came from. And, and the doctor explained to her that, um, that a lot of it was frustration. And I think that really helped Glenda get inside the, uh, you know, the experience of, of, of living with this disease. So I think she's, she's, she found that incredibly helpful. And in fact, I think one of the most sort of gratifying things about the whole making the film and the response to the film was, was how many dementia organizations um, talked about the film as as an example of um, how accurate a portrayal it was of that yeah. disease and and in fact you know use it in training <laughs> to help people understand what it's like really so that's a that's a I mean I think that was probably made us proudest of 
anything, um, feeling that that those people who are working with people with dementia felt that it was a um, a truthful portrayal. And I mean, that's partly Glenda's complete and utter <laughs> genius. Yeah. Um, but it's the way it's written and, and obviously the advice she got as well. Yeah, not just a very compelling piece of drama, but also something that's making a, a real difference in every everyday lives to a lot of people. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. quite a, that's quite something, yeah. yeah. Um, Emma, um, David Tennant uh, is is now kind of you know he's becoming firmly wedged in our minds as the bad guy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, who knows? Who knows what will be next? Uh, um, Tell us about uh, your approach to, to to David and getting him involved in in Deadwater Fell because he's he's really really he's really excellent on it really excellent. Yeah, I, I I feel as though we've sort of set him on a dark path. Yeah, which was sort of <laughs> it's sort of our fault that he's now gone, gone to the dark side. Um, no, it was a, it the the project wasn't written for David. It was you know we got, but when we were looking for someone to play Tom, obviously. It was fantastically important that he felt real and he felt authentic and that people believed him and that he was a very kind of normal seeming man with we it was such a difficult tightrope to walk because it's kind of you know the the whole thing of the project is we're exploring the nature of evil is is tom kendrick an evil man or not and somebody finding an actor that has the nuance and the subtlety to play that is really difficult and when when we started talking about David, we just, you know, he embodied everything that we needed. We wanted people to warm to him. We wanted him to be plausible. We wanted him to, to seem like an everyman, which at that stage, obviously, you know, in terms of also, you know, what David brings to it and his previous roles, a lot of viewers, I think, were coming to it thinking that he would be playing a certain type of character. And then bit by bit, we kind of unpeeled that and showed them something very different. Um, and it was fantastic for us. We sent him the script and that he wanted to come on board was really, really exciting for us. And then David also said, and something that he's not done before is that he was interested in being an exec producer. Mm -hmm. And again, having his voice in the, in the producing sphere for the first time was, was so beneficial for us. It was brilliant. He brought so much to it. I think he's, he would be very modest and say that he doesn't think that he did, but you know, it was, it was a really fantastic, um, extra layer for us in terms of how he worked. Um, tell, tell, tell us a little bit more, what's, what's he like in that role, Emma? Well, it's, I mean, he's, he's a fantastically generous actor anyway, and he's now a fantastically generous producer, but he's an extraordinarily experienced actor and has worked with so many people over the years and brought so much to it in terms of casting and thoughts on the cut and he was brilliantly uh, respectful of Daisy's script, but his notes on the script were like were really insightful, and he did he worked so hard on, uh, in every area, um, not just on his character, but you know in terms in terms of the rest of the production, and and it was really really helpful. And we were majority of female team, we you know female exec producers, female director, female DOP, and having David as the kind of the, the one man in the room was also really fantastic because he was he was very respectful of, of the female team, but also brought a, a really interesting perspective to the work, which was it, which was brilliant. And I think it, it I would hope that it also helped him in terms of his performance as well. I wonder if in, in a similar way to, to the to the feedback that, that Sarah's just described from professional bodies dealing with a very difficult social subject, you know, did you experience any feedback? 
I mean, because the term coercive control has kind of entered the mainstream. Uh, maybe not something that a lot of people had heard of or understood up until maybe a couple of years ago. Um, did it help? Have you any experience or understanding of to what extent it has helped to shine that light on it? I, th I think slightly less so than, I mean, I think, you know, the, the work that Elizabeth is missing has done in terms of the, of the of dementia is, is wonderful. We had less of that, but I do, I think you're right. I think, you know, especially when episode four went out and the series didn't end with a kind of big twist. It was never about a kind of who done it. It was always a why done it. And I think the, you know, the conversation around the show, I think was really important because a lot of people watched it and said, oh, that nice David Tennant, he would never have done that, which elevates the, the conversation around the fact that nobody knows there is no evil face of yeah. predominantly men, not always, but predominantly men. There is no evil face for that. Nobody presents in that way. And I think, I think we were able to expand the conversation. Um, Jules, uh, Jamie Sivis and Mark Bonner uh, might now be um, my favourite Scottish double act since, I don't know, Ford and Greg or Francie and Josie. Or, you know, <laughs> Dennis Law and <laughs> Kenny Dobwish, whoever you want to say. Uh, they, they, um, they were, I thought, really terrific together and worked. Uh, just, it, was, it, just, it seemed like they'd been working together forever. Um, which interestingly, I, I, I know from interviewing them, they did, they did know each other in school. Yeah, they've known each other for a very, very long time, um, which caused us a few delays when shooting because they'd be messing about quite a lot. Um, <laughs> if you watch the behind the scenes things, videos on, on iPlay, you'll see that. But they've known each other. And, and that chemistry that just came so naturally to set, I think, did make that kind of screen gold. And, and, and Neil Forsyth knew, knew that, knew that that's the team he was bringing together. He wrote it with, with that in mind, with them in mind, or certainly with. Um, with Mark from having done Eric, Ernie and me. And then I think um, in, in terms of just overall the cast, Robbie McKillop, the director and Carolyn Stewart, casting director and, and myself with the execs put together and fought, fought and, and thought very hard about representing a modern Scotland. So across the board with our cast, you know, taking our fantastic double act and ensuring that we represented Scotland as it is now, you know, in, in terms of, you know, a, a great Eamon Elliott, you know, Moyo yeah. Kande, Newf McEwen, you know, I can keep going really, you know, in terms of the, 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 the cast that we had, Ellie Haddington, um, and just as I say, as a team, Caroline did some fantastic work and Robbie really pushed and, and at every level, Neil and the execs really embracing that. And um, um, there's a lot to be said, and I think Emma was saying it in, ter in terms of David, but what actors bring to, to feeding back on the script, you know, at every level in terms of the representation of the women, in terms of even affecting working practice, Mark came on board and immediately said, I insist this is a 50-50 production. And we had 56% women, 44% men. You know, and I think when you've got that kind of energy on set, it, 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 it comes across on screen. And I think some of that double act energy that you saw is actually down to a couple of really good guys, you know, who created a really good atmosphere. Yeah. Um, Casting, casting your minds back. I mean, I, I, as I say, Jules, you know, being on set for the for the production of um, of Guilt seems like you know it seems like quite a while ago. Uh, but then you add the year that we've had since then, and it seems like you know it's in another universe. But cast your mind back, all of you, if you can, to the production process with each of your of of, uh, of your stories, and give us me and the audience a, a little bit of an insight, if you can, into the kind of obstacles that you were maybe faced with that, that you were able to, to overcome before anyone had heard of COVID-19. Is this apart from the weather? 
Yeah, well, there you go. There's the one. <laughs> not, not, not apart from the weather at all. That's first on the agenda. I think we were kind of back to back as well, these three productions. I remember we, I think that we used similar unit um, uh, production bases. I think that we kind of just handed over reams of paper to each other as we uh, <laughs> emptied Parkhouse Industrial Estate and moved on. So, um, yeah, I think a lot of those kind of usual things that we just, we roll with the punches with things like weather and we just, we get on and we find alternatives. And that's about the collaborative process. Um, I'm trying to think of any other obstacles. I'll let you guys speak while I have a think, but I'm, I'm trying to think of something unusual. Anything spring to mind? I mean, uh, we, had to, we had to find that we, we our, our our film for those of you who've seen it is it, it it jumps it jumps back in time to to you know um, yeah the nineteen forties and and so there was the challenge of finding locations that were period locations that that would blend seamlessly with the present day because Maud of course is going yep. back and forth in time in her mind and we we represent that on screen so that that was a challenge and actually found some fantastic locations in in Paisley and um and we did struggle for a while to find the right bandstand because <laughs> the bandstand is is quite an iconic scene um a couple of yeah, scenes yeah. in in the film and and that that took us a while but we did find it in Turk and Tillich in the so end. obviously i was going to ask where it was because i, I it is one of the scenes that sticks out uh, one of the scenes yeah. that sticks out in the mind it was Kirk and Tillich. yeah um does it still look as bonny as you made it look i'm sure it does i mean these all victorian bandstands are just incredible really and um but i think um ashling and our dop lucas Strevel just made it look even more incredible than it already is yeah i think um right before emma talks about burning houses um <laughs> i am um, um i think actually the, the location thing is is the thing that was the, the biggest challenge for us and finding that street where the accident happens and actually the houses the three houses in that sort of triangle are really there geographically we had to cheat nothing that kind of otherness of the world that the the neil and his locations team found i think was absolute magic and and the challenge is you're shooting two weeks i think of, of split days which is nighttime basically in a residential street that was a massive challenge and i think the way that the team um engaged with and gained the utter trust of the residents was was the biggest challenge and worked incredibly well i mean they're, they're shooting series two now and i still get texts from the residents in that street so that that was a challenge that was handled brilliantly and we didn't burn any houses down <laughs> Speaking of burning houses, Emma. Yeah, we burnt the house down. Um, yeah, that I mean, that was that was absolutely it was the it was the biggest challenge, and and obviously made bigger by the fact that similarly we jump around in time. It's very kind of near time, but we're in the house in three states. We're in the house when Tom and Kate live in it. We're in the house for the um, when it's burnt down, and then we're in it again after it has been burned down, and. So obviously finding a location that would allow us to approximate that in any way was, it was our original intention. And then it, we realized it was impossible. So we built it. And that was, you know, Dave Arrowsmith was our designer and he was absolutely extraordinary and built the extraordinary house. And then obviously we had complete control over it, but it was pretty amazing to walk into a, just a, you know, completely empty cops wooded area and then you know eight weeks later nine weeks later we have a house yeah and yeah it was phenomenal and he just created the most beautiful kitchen i just wanted to live there and uh yeah and then we burnt it down which was it down, yeah. <laughs> where, where exactly was it it was in houston oh in renfrewshire yeah 
Yeah. I think a, a challenge for us all overlapping as well was, was not stealing each other's crew because there's yeah. such, such amazing people in Scotland. And yeah. I think there were quite often phone calls being exchanged. Oh, can you have that person leave a bit early? You know, Tim yeah. locations or Wendy. Whatever, yeah. you know? I, I, had, I had forgotten that we all all used the same production office as well. Yes, we did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if it was in Houston, Emma, then, you know, David Tennant's from just five minutes up the road. The yeah. fellow was filming in his old back garden. Yeah, he was. <laughs> um, was there a point in... Any of your, I don't know if this is maybe too specific a moment to ask for, but was there a point during production where it landed and, and, and you, you each individually had that moment where you were confident that what you were on to was, was a winner? I, I actually knew at the read-through because that's when Glenda appeared. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, she, she arrived and um, just started reading and we all just kind of went... Well, we're, we're 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 fine because she was just so incredible. Even because because you know some actors give their all at a read through and and some are quite quiet and um and um she just kind of was mod from that first moment and we all thought well this is you know whatever else we've got we've got a, an amazing performance at the centre of it really so yeah yeah I think. For me, actually, I mean, you know, we all—I think we all have those moments in the read-through, exactly. But for, for me, walking into Robbie McKillop's um, office and just looking at the pictures that him and Tom Sayer had put together, and and Tim in locations of, of of the places and the tone of this, I think a lot of what um, I felt made made Gilt very different is is the very distinct style and tone, and that really was was Robbie and, and his design team and location team's vision. And walking every time I walked into that office and looked at these walls covered. In reference pictures i thought okay we want we all know where we're heading and it's utterly doable and i can't wait to see it on the other on the other side yeah, yeah. yeah i'd have to say, i think mine was fairly similar it was the same as walking into lindsay's office lindsay miller director and looking at all her reference pictures and and everything that she and naeus dop have put together and same thing you know it's it, yeah we're, we're in a difficult world we're telling a difficult story it could have gone in quite difficult ways but you know they 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 tonally knew exactly what they wanted to do Lindsay's vision for the series was so strong and yeah your shoulders come down and you go yeah this is this is gonna be amazing and then you start to see the rushes come in and it's like yeah we it, it's fantastic this is where we want to be it's wonderful now very helpfully Jules uh, you've positioned a clock over your shoulder there <laughs> me that uh, it is seven minutes past eight and that seven minutes ago I was supposed to deliver a prompt to our audience that they are uh, in 15 minutes no sorry at quarter past eight to 8 15 uh, we'll be looking to answer or to ask on their behalf you guys some of their questions I can see one or two are already in but please feel free, folks, uh, to pile in with your own questions uh, as and when you like. Um, things have changed. We're, we live in a very different world this year, and the the world that 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 you were in when you were each making these programs is in the past. Um, to what extent do you think that the time that we've lived through and what we are currently living through is is going to um, impact on on making television programs of the types that, that you've been making oh that's a big question um in terms of working practice or content i think you mean content working practice and content i think from the production point of view it probably would be quite interesting to know what what it means from a practical perspective you know i, I walked i was driving up the road in glasgow here earlier today 
and I saw what I think was a production. Uh, guilt, guilt, probably. Yeah, <laughs> on the side of Glasgow, and and it struck me that you know, as much as there was the, the the normal infrastructure that you would see when there was some filming going on, there were fewer people around for sure. I mean, I'm in prep um, at the moment. I think one of you guys has been shooting already, haven't you? Is it? Emma's, 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 yeah, yeah. yeah we, we're, um, we're shooting series six of Grantchester um, down in Cambridgeshire in Hertfordshire and it's it, it is a struggle but more than anything I'm just absolutely kind of you know it, it's so fantastic to see how brilliantly crews adapt and that's what they do it's what we do in this industry you know you're faced with a problem and you work out how to solve it and the crew have all been amazing. It's incredibly difficult. As you say, there are less people around. I think they're probably all still there. They're just all bubbled and they're not allowed to interact and every department is separated. There are, you know, tiers and cohorts and, you know, actors are not allowed to mingle with, with certain members of crew because they're all in different bubbles. And it's, it's a much tougher way of shooting, but people are shooting and the work is getting done and something like Grantchester, which is a period show, obviously it's 1958, COVID does not exist. Yeah. So, you know, we, we're having to come up with brilliantly um, creative ways to shoot around that, but the, the crew are stepping up to the mark and doing it. And it is tough and it's, it, it makes for tougher days for them, but they are all resilient and fantastic. And I think in a lot of cases as well, because the last year has been so hard, people are really pleased to be back in a creative working environment. Yeah. I think we feel incredibly lucky that, and in, in some ways, it, it you know that we're seen as an essential business. Effectively, it mm. is an honour, and we I think I'm engaging with a lot of crew crewing up now who are aware of that privilege and that that we have, and are really respectful of it. I'm I'm, I'm finding in prep and engaging crew and and cast is a, a slightly different approach to to. The value of our work and how we should treat each other and, and just a slight reshift in, in mentality in a really positive way um people being much more aware of, of of caring responsibilities and and being near home and all those kind of things because of the pandemic that we've been through and it, it's been interesting it's a shift that we've needed for a while I, I didn't want a pandemic to make it happen but it has been very very interesting watching those attitudes shift so yeah i mean i <laughs> Yes, it, it's been a terrible year for freelancers. There's no getting away from that. And I, and I, I feel for those people so much because I think it's been incredibly stressful and not knowing what, what the end would be. And there was a period where we really didn't know whether we, anybody would get back filming this year. And it's a you know, testament to all those crews that that has happened. But um, I think that if this pandemic has taught us anything is how important content is in TV and film and you know it's been absolutely essential to our sanity frankly and it's just brilliant that that as you say you know that people are problem solvers in our business and it's just you know it's just fantastic the way they have kind of faced this challenge and found ways around it and um, but you know it's, it's been really tough and I just hope that that we're kind of <laughs> You know, there is light at the end of the tunnel and that life will go back to some kind of normal but um yeah it's um you know it's brilliant to to be able to i mean looking at what's happening in scotland next year there are a lot of productions happening in scotland next year and that is fantastic because it just you know after the year that everyone's had it's just brilliant that there's work around 
Great. Okay, folks, I'm going to um, uh, facilitate uh, the audience in asking you one or two questions. And I'm doing that um, by toggling between my phone and my screen. So if I'm peering off to the side, please excuse me. The first question is for you, uh, Sarah. Um, it's from Victor Schoenfeld. Uh, was Elizabeth is Missing more challenging to get developed and greenlit because a single, as, as a single TV film rather than a series? Well, as I said, it did start its life as a, as a three-parter. And, and in fact, it was the BBC who suggested it should become a film. So in that sense, it's not the way around you might imagine. Um, but I think that one of the challenges of single films is just that they are... Um, Financially, it's just quite a hard thing to pull off because there's no economies of scale that you get with multi-part shows. So, um, you know, it's 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 they're just harder to they're harder to to finance really. But um, but I think that the BBC is certainly you know they still make a few singles and I think they just um, they need to feel like real treats for the audience and they can be still be dark and about subjects like dementia but but I think that they you know it's quite hard for them to to stand out in what is a very you know busy tv landscape so I think it you know un undoubtedly single films are harder to get made and funded um but I think that the ones that come along that really stand out I think um you know they're they they, they very much feel <laughs> feel worth the worth the struggles Victor, on that note about the, you know getting these the single dramas funded, Victor also asked what ingredients make a single TV film a good candidate for that kind of development and funding? <laughs> that is a good question. I mean, I think that things that have either a big topical subject matter that people are talking about and care about, I think that, that, that you know, they've got a better chance. And I think if they are based on a big... A well-known book I think that helps I think that it's harder to get smaller um, more domestic um, just small you know quite quieter pieces I think they're the ones that really struggle to get commissioned um, these days okay right uh, unless these questions are specifically for any one of you then I'm just going to throw them out there and you can you can you know if you have an answer you can you can pile in uh, Susanna Swanson Johnson asks, if it takes two to three years to develop dramas, how do you get programming on TV that reflects current situations and feels responsive? That is a very good question. I wish I had a very good answer to that. <laughs> mm, yeah. That, well, that's the, that's the alchemy of commissioning, isn't it? And I think it's adapting, it's taking an idea and adapting it as you develop it. I mean, I've got a project that's been in development for four years and it has it has a universal relevance to a certain degree, but we are constantly revisiting and bringing it up to date with the political situation in which it's set. And I think it's it's that it is that awareness and revision and you might change. So unless it's very, very specifically set at a certain time, then you either turn it around really quickly and hit that time or you adapt as you go along. You know, and that happens, you know, even in a complete fiction with with apparently no you know, factual relevance, that, that still applies. It's always got to work within the, you know, have a relevance to your audience at the time that you you know it's going to hit the screens. Kieran Bourne asks, how did you arrive at the decision to choose the directors for the shows? And what were the qualities that Lindsay Aisling has, 
My goodness, my goodness. I have a cousin called Ashley. My apologies. Uh, it's just when I see it written down, I always must pronounce it. And Robert possessed that got them the job. Well, I mean, we we um, we made a decision about Ashling just sort of instantly, really, after meeting her, because um, she, I suppose, we felt we needed somebody who was a filmmaker that could make our our quite our domestic piece feel a bit more cinematic and to give it a kind of um, an atmosphere and a sort of poetry. And because she's a, a director who moves between film and TV. She has, she, she knows how to do that. And then she just came in and did the most um, spectacular meeting and came in with this amazing mood board of images um, that just sort of conjured up the world. And she just really instantly got the film that we were trying to make. So it, it felt actually one of the easiest decisions I've had to make about a director really. I mean, Robbie was very much the same, came in with a very clear vision you know, Fargo-esque, you know, widescreen, the, just the, the colours, the neons, you know, he came in with a mood board that he, he, he stuck to, not in a stubborn way, but in because he knew the vision and we and everyone utterly was committed to it from the very outset. And he came in with an other complete passion for, you know, as I said earlier, for this for this being a, the first Scottish TV, um, BBC Scotland drama and, and just with an absolute clarity as to what he saw himself and his team able to deliver on screen. And, they, you know, he was, he was, the obvious choice. Uh, same with Lindsay, to be honest. I mean, it is, it, it is, you, you know, you sit down, you talk to a director and, you know, somebody like Lindsay who came in with such a clear vision for the show and really understood, um, you know, what Daisy was, what Daisy wanted from the script, really understood the characters. Um, yeah, was, as I say, yeah, just a really, really clear vision for what she wanted to do. And completely right tonally and again as with Robbie and Ashling, you know kind of really stuck to that and saw it through and really you know was a was a real captain of the ship as as we went through the the shoot and yeah it's it, it's wonderful and and you know I'm, I'm not speaking out of turn about directors but you do sometimes get directors that come in and you think oh, you actually read that script <laughs> at all that's interesting. Or they have a, their vision for it is completely different, you know, completely valid but very different. But yeah. but Lindsay just really understood what Daisy wanted and what we wanted, and it was it it was a it was a lovely relationship. I think I think that's the kind of I mean it, it feels like it's stating the obvious, but I think that every sort of key person that you bring onto a show, and we had this with our producer Chrissy Skins as well. You just kind of they come into the room, you feel like they totally get what you're trying to do. And, and if you were pulling in different directions at that point, the show is never good. So I think whoever you bring on from the producer, director, designer, they've all got to get what you're trying to do and not be pulling in different directions. And I think, um, you know, and you kind of know it when you, you know it pretty quickly, I think, if somebody's trying to make the same show as you. And of course there's creative discussions and tensions and debates and, that's all to the good. But I think basically, if you're all trying to achieve the same thing, then it's going to, it's going to have a better chance of being good. It's a collaborative process. If you know, if it's just a writer, it's a book. If it's just a director, there's no camera, there's no lighting, there's no, so it's, it, you know, Sarah's exactly right. All, all of those decisions, you kind of, it, it's making sure everyone's pulling in exactly the same direction, but you love a good, good argument. There's good things yeah. can happen. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to set you a challenge uh, for this one. Heather Challenge is after your job. Uh, she's a hopeful future producer. Uh, in order to keep the answer to this one tight, and uh, so we can get through some other uh, questions, 
In your opinion, Heather asks, what are the most vital qualities to bring to the role of producer? Trust. Excellent answer. One word answer. The best. I <laughs> <laughs> no, not have to be one word. All of these answers are one word answers. This thing would be over pretty quickly, but in order to get to the next question, excellent. Uh, Emma. Calmness. Nice. Sarah. <laughs> I've got two words. Um, oh. Emotional intelligence. Oh. <laughs> there you go, Heather. I hope you uh, have taken a note of those. Um, <laughs> Erin France asks, why do you think Scotland has become so popular in the TV and film industry over the last few years? Perhaps not as popular as a lot of people working in Scotland would like to see it, but um, it has nevertheless, there have been, you know, your testament to the fact that there are productions that have been happening and continue to happen in Scotland. What's changed? Well, I think it's a, com I mean, it's a combination of the talent being here, you know, that, that there is a really trusted crews and HODs in Scotland. And then I think, being more sort of practical about it, I think there's no doubt that the BBC's and Channel 4's um, commitment to spending more money in the nations and regions has had a real impact. And they've talked about that for a long time. And I think in the last few years that they have really put their money where their mouths are and they have commissioned more from Scotland. And, and I think, you know, these three shows are, are um, the beneficiaries of that. I'd, I mean, I'd add to that, I'd sort of carry on from that and say, and also Creative Scotland, who has invested and supported yeah. all, all areas of the sector, um, you know, in a fantastic way. And, and the film offices, I find, in, in Glasgow and Edinburgh, and uh, the work, who we work with, are just so pro. And, and the way that some of the councils and the film commissions have, have real support mechanisms, I can't say that, mechanisms in place. I think it, is, it felt quite different from, from a lot of regions, I have to say. But Creative Scotland, for us, played a massive role. Yeah, I think I imagine they they invested in all our shows, and they have, they you know they've got a TV fund now because I think a lot of their funding in the past, if I'm not mistaken, was more focused towards feature films, and that's that's a great thing. Um, but I think there is now a TV fund, and I think that's helped us all probably, I imagine, make make our shows. Money, talent, and landscapes, I think, are, are probably three factors of why there's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly, and, and you know, all three of them, uh, all three of you of your programs are, are testament to that for sure. Um, Janet All asks, what are the COVID-related changes that have actually been surprisingly beneficial, and that will continue to use moving forward, pandemic or not? Have there been any? Um, I would say time to get scripts ready before you actually start prep has been a massive thing, mm. um, which may not be the case with with projects now. You know, really trying to get up to speed, but. I'm certainly finding it, and myself and a few peers are finding that just having people having that, you know, unfortunate lockdown period to actually get scripts ready means that we're, we're entering very complex prep periods and shoot periods for actually having all our scripts in place. Yeah, uh, being a little facetious about it, also having, being able to keep actors a little bit more focused on what they're doing and where they need to be, rather than on their phones, over by the tea table, um, you know, gossiping with each other. Um, that is being facetious, but um, yeah, there, there is a yes. There's a there's a fantastic focus from crews. Really, is a fantastic focus from crews on set. But having said that, I think that we possibly would be very happy to relax that a little bit, so that people didn't have to work in this way because it is tough, and people are doing an amazing job. Yeah. But 
sorry, there's a phrase that someone told me years ago. I remember being annoyed with the usual recce crew standing in the middle of a street thinking that because they're a TV crew, it didn't matter where they stood. And a, a fantastic operator, camera operator used the phrase cinematic immunity. And I think, you know, <laughs> making us all wake up a little bit to the fact that we're not immune and we have to be respectful of, of you know, everything from, a, you know, a virus to the people who are shut in their houses and we're all outside doing our job. That's that's a positive thing that, and it refers back to that sort of shift in approach that I mentioned earlier, but but being aware that that we are not immune just because we're a TV crew to anything and being a bit more self-aware has been fantastic, actually. I mean, I've personally enjoyed um, my writers all being trapped in their houses <laughs> <laughs> so that they have to have to do those scripts that I've been waiting for. Sure. So, um, you know, it's not great for them. It's not great for, for anyone, but, um, but you know, that there's fewer distractions. So I'm finding that actually drama development, uh, you know, the development of scripts has been, has speeded up. So, I mean, that's not going to last forever, but it was nice while it lasted. Maddie Bryce asks, as successful female producers, could you speak to the relationship between the change in atmosphere with regards to women rising up in film and the age we live in, where up and coming talent is expected to now write and shoot much of their own content to get noticed, as opposed to the traditional roots of getting one script picked up? I'm not quite sure. Can can, shall we, can shall you help we me connect the, the, the female thing to the? Well, we to the first part of the question. A successful female producers, could you speak to the relationship between the change in atmosphere with regards to women rising up in film and the age we live in? Mm. Are things are things? I guess from your particular point of view, given the jobs that you do, are are things easier for women in, in that role? I think I, I mean I think I, I interpret this first part of the question slightly differently in terms of it fits for me it might be just echoing what I've kind of said is, is that our attitude shifting and making it easier for women to come up through the ranks you know I think as an industry are we changing I think yes we are not quick enough I mean I think we've all we're all at a point now where you know we're in a lucky position to support people you know of color of gender gender identity neurodivergence everything to come up through the ranks and and and, and hopefully you know men and women in our position trying to make that happen i think there is a shift in the industry which makes people absolutely aware of the need to include women in as many departments you know and i go back to mark bonner saying this has to be a 50 50. i think i think the whole the whole world is changing and, and we are moving along with it at a maybe slightly different pace i'm not going to say whether that's behind or in front but yeah we are being aware and, and it's as women, I don't know if everybody agrees, but as women, I think we we, we are aware of it because we've come up through the ranks and had to possibly fight harder, not always. And and we try and not make it easier because people still have to have the skills, but but be aware and support. Not yeah. sure if that answers the question, but. I mean, I think there's, there's, a, there's a need for, I mean, there's a need for kind of plurality of, of of voices and people across the industry, whether that be gender or as, as you say, Jules, in terms of um, ethnicity or background and class and all those things, that the industry is not yet nearly diverse enough and doesn't really represent our, um, you know, our world. Um, so that, you know, we're on that journey. And I think that, um, yeah, there's quite a long way to go, but I think it's 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 I think I think there does need to be there need to be more women writers, more women directors, and um, you know I think there are probably more female producers than there are writers and directors, 
Um, but um, hopefully with more female producers, there, there's, you know, that side of things will will improve as well. But of course, you know, I think I think most people um, believe that plurality of voices and experiences is going to end up be in better programming. So okay. we need to make, you know, we need to all be part of that, I think. We, we have two minutes left, and I'm not going to get through, unfortunately, all the questions we have tonight, but two, two that are covering almost a, a similar territory to some extent. Um, uh, Amelia Nash asks, uh, if you have any advice for relatively new writer-producers looking to bring the writing projects to co-produce with you, and if it's a red flag of writers asked to be more involved in the production process? Hmm. I mean, I think increasingly a lot of the uh, writers are becoming executive producers on shows and um but it tends to be writers who have had some of their own work made um because um <laughs> you know there is more to being an executive producer than just deciding um who you're going to cast and um giving script notes i mean there's there's the there's the really challenging side of it which is you know, dealing with budgets and dealing with um, really difficult situations, and I think that um, I think I think it's just the realization that 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 being a producer or an executive producer is not just it's not just a creative role; it's also the responsibilities that go go with that. So I'm not scared of writers being executive producers if I feel that they that they kind of take the whole of the job um, that comes with it. Okay. And, and in terms of plurality, plurality of voices, if people have, you know, I, I'm actually reaching out for, for writers to come in and be more involved in two of my projects because they come with, a, with, for want of a better term, a lived experience. And it's not necessarily about taking that formal executive producer role, but wanting an authenticity yeah. of voice. Yeah. Um, so actually, I think we're, a lot of us in development are reaching out to people to say, you know, this, you know, write what you know, you know this story. You know, we're going to fictionalize it, but I want that authenticity of voice. But you don't have your budget, so you weren't exec executive at this point. You know, yeah. this is a balance. Yeah. Um, very quickly, um, for 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 whoever whoever grabs the the question and decides to answer it at, on a similar uh, similar territory, any advice uh, Esther Scott asks for graduates and young people trying to forge careers in production during COVID restrictions and in the aftermath, which I suppose is a different consideration from any advice for young people trying to get into the business. I think the brutal honesty is it's a really hard time to get in, you know, just for any newcomers, no matter what their age, I think, it, you know, we're limiting trainees on sets. Um, you know, it's, I think it's just really do things like this, join all the, the, the sessions, join as many. And, and it, I know it can be sometimes disheartening for it all to be remote, but just absorb as much information as you can now, because the, the unfortunate fact is having as many trainees as we would normally have on, on set is impossible. We did a, a big scheme on guilt and we had, 20 people on set on various days. I'm lucky if I can get one on this because of COVID restrictions, but use, use the internet, make those networks, read stuff, go to the BBC writer's room, you know, read as many scripts and just, just you know, bank all that information while you've got the time to do it. Great, folks, we are one minute over time. I can tell from that clock on your wall. <laughs> so uh, thank you very much. It's been lovely speaking to you uh, tonight and thank you to our audience um, and those of you who uh, got involved with asking questions. Um, congratulations once again.
to all of you. Um, look forward to seeing you all on your virtual ball gowns uh, on the big night. <laughs> uh, and thank you to our supporting partner for the sessions, Screen Scotland. To the audience, we hope you've enjoyed the discussion. Please do join the conversation on BAFTA's social channels and stay tuned for details on where to watch the British Academy Scotland Awards. Folks, thank you very much once again. Have a nice evening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much.